Hey, good to see you. Uh, this morning, we're diving right back in with the same series we were in before Sergio and Ali came. Talking about the next chapter and adopting a posture, not necessarily knowing what the next chapter is, but certainly being ready for it and having an appropriate posture to hear from the Lord and to receive whatever it is that comes from His hand. So this morning, we are talking about baseball. I hate baseball. Um, mostly because I suck at baseball. Uh, I want to tell you about a, a little scarring incident that happened to me early in my development as a human being. Uh, I did not grow up doing the sports thing, uh, whatever that is. I am Canadian. I'm one of two Canadians that does not play hockey. Uh, certainly do not never play baseball at all growing up. That's just not my scene until middle school phys ed class. Because there's an entire unit that was called baseball. And we all had to go, and as a class, we had to go out and play baseball. And so, knowing absolutely nothing about baseball, you know, they divide up the teams, they make team captains, and they pick teams. You know, the team captains, students, pick teams. What a great idea for middle school insecurity complexes. Anyways, they're picking teams. I sort of went in the middle because I hadn't quite reached my full height yet, but I wasn't like this. I was scrunt. It doesn't matter. I went somewhere in the middle. I've never swung a bat before in my life. I've never, I don't own a mitt. Like I, I, I think you're supposed to like swing at this round thing that they throw at you or you're supposed to cower from it one way or the other. So they put me in my role. Uh, they said, you should be the first base umpire. Okay. How hard can that be? It's not like anything happens at first base. It's a really slow part of the game. And so I'm standing at first base, and I don't know what the rules of the game are, so it's also very appropriate that I should be umpire. And so one of these, you know, an early hit in the game, boom, right out, right towards the second baseman, he picks it up, kind of bobbles it a bit, so I know it's going to be close. The runner's coming towards first. The throw's coming in, and, it's, and who's going to be? The excitement is palpable. I didn't know it was exciting because I didn't know what was happening. But I heard the ball hit the mitt before I heard the foot hit the bag. So very clearly, in a loud voice, I said, He's out! <laughs> now, Mom, when you listen to this podcast, I just did a hand signal for he's safe. <laughs> the fact that some of you just laughed means you like baseball as much as I do. So I not no I just figured like this is like a generic universal sign for no bad like just he's out of there like no stop running go home you're terrible and instead I I spoke one call signaled the other call both teams erupted with anger at me and I just cowered in the back like I don't even know what I did wrong yet <clears throat> from that day forward I was picked last. I was that kid. You know, that's the kid who you, and to get to the end, I'll take so and so, I'll take so and so. And it was Bushfield left. I don't really want him. Do you want him? Not really. Well, I had him last time. Oh, I guess I'll take him this time then. Like they're, they're trading favors to not have me on their team. And that, that hurt. I'm not going to lie. That hurt. Because what people saw when they looked at me was someone who did not have game. Someone who had no skill set. Someone who had no visible gifts in the field of baseballness. I was a liability based on the perception of everybody around me. 
And what I discovered as I reflect back on that is I internalized all of those external messages. I didn't play sports again through all of school, through all of college. Now I play basketball, but I'm j- I just stand in, in the post and call for the ball and just tip it in because no one can reach it. <laughs> it's not actually any skill. But I internalized that. Me- I allowed what people saw to sort of dictate who I became. What I heard loud and clear is there is no next chapter for me in baseball. You know, I think that happens to us more than we realize. And not just when we're kids. We hear the messages that people are speaking around us. Messages of either judgment or, or accusation or, or declarations of our insufficiency that we just don't measure up to whatever standards exist for whatever context we're supposed to be operating in. It even happens in church. I mean, that's the place it shouldn't happen ever, right? Here's the place of universal welcome. You're welcome. And that we say, well, uh, let's see, what gifts do you have? What ministry can we align you? Well, I don't really have any gifts. I don't, I don't know what I've got. I don't, how do I even fit into a place like this? Much less be part of whatever God's next chapter is, right? There's that sense of anticipation. I want to be part of it. But even in churches, we can get those messages that just say, eh, Maybe you should try a different ministry team. I want to introduce you to a character in Scripture this morning who was picked last. I want to introduce you to a character in Scripture this morning whom from the outward appearances had no business being part of the kingdom of God. And I want to introduce you to a character from Scripture who will teach us that the next chapter does not depend on what the world sees. It only depends on what God sees. And that character will teach us that this is the best news ever. That was for you, Andy. Unfortunately, he's also going to teach us that same news is also the worst news ever. How can this be both? Hang tight, because I want to introduce you to King David. King David is like a rock star, right? You, you go through the Bible, everybody's heard of King David unless you're brand new to the faith, in which case, hey, you're going to find out about King David this morning, and that's going to be awesome. But we're not going to actually talk about King David because King David is when you know the end of the story. Instead, we're going to go to the beginning of the story and just look at the David part. Let's strip the king off. So if you've got your Bibles, turn to 1 Samuel chapter 16, and we're going to describe, we're going to see in the pages of Scripture when David was selected to be anointed as king. If you've got a Black Pew Bible, you're going to find it on page 226. If you have a rogue blue Pew Bible, you're on your own. But you can follow along with me as I read 1 Samuel chapter 16. And we're just going to read verses 1 through 13 together. First Samuel 16, starting at verse 1, we find these words. The Lord said to Samuel, who's a prophet, How long will you mourn for Saul since I have rejected him as king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil, because that's what you use to anoint a king, and be on your way. I am sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem. I have chosen one of his sons to be king. Samuel says, how can I go? If Saul hears about it, he'll kill me. The Lord says, hit, look, take a heifer with you and say, I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. Invite Jesse to the sacrifice 
and I'll show you what to do. You're to anoint for me the one I indicate. That's what the Lord is saying. So Samuel did what the Lord said. Verse 4, when he arrived at Bethlehem, the elders of the town trembled when they met him. Uh Uh-oh, here comes a big prophet guy. Are we in trouble? They asked him, do you come in peace? Verse 5, Samuel replies, yes, in peace. I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come to the sacrifice with me. Then he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. Now, when they arrived, Samuel saw Eliab and thought, surely this is the Lord's anointed. Look at this guy. Verse 7, though, the Lord said to Samuel, do not consider his appearance or his height, or I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. And so then Jesse called Abinadab and had him pass in front of Samuel. But Samuel said, nope, the Lord has not chosen this one either. Jesse then had Shema pass by, but Samuel said, huh, nor has the Lord chosen this one. Jesse had seven of his sons pass before Samuel, and Samuel said to him, The Lord has not chosen these. So we asked Jesse, are are these all the sons you have? There's still, I mean, there's the youngest, Jesse answered, but he's out tending sheep. Samuel said, send for him. He will not sit down until he arrives. So he sent for him and had him brought in, and he was glowing with health and had a fine appearance and handsome features. And the Lord said, Rise and anoint him. This is the one. So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And from that day on, the Spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David. This is the word of the Lord. That might be a familiar text to many of you. And it's a text that hopefully you can already see the glimpses of how the next chapter of whatever God's inviting us into does not depend on what the world sees, but it only depends on what God sees. And I love this text because David was literally picked last for the team. He wasn't even invited to be anointed. He didn't get invited to the party. Like all the other brothers get to go. And David, he's he's just out in the field. Obviously, David's not going to be chosen as king. I mean, he's got nothing going for him. I mean, he might be handsome, but that's it. That's all he's got. And I love this description. I'm at the risk of of repeating myself here, but if we go back to 1 Samuel 16, starting at verse 5, I just love this progression. Right? Then Samuel consecrates Jesse and his sons, and they arrive, and he sees Eliab. And he says, surely the, the Lord's anointed stands here before the Lord. What was it about Eliab that that drew his attention? We only find out by looking down to verse 7, the Lord said to Samuel, do not consider his appearance or his height. I mean, I thought his height would do it for him. I I mean, height is a measure of holiness. And I thought this was clearly kingship material here. And apparently, he's rejected by God because of his height. So I'm worried. And so Jesse calls his other sons and they all go by one by one by one by one by one and the Lord has not chosen these and I love this. So uh, he says, are these, you got any other sons? You, um, the well's running dry here. I'm, I'm looking to anoint someone and, and Jesse's answer, well, 
this is almost like in disbelief, right? I mean, they're still the youngest, but certainly you're not interested in him. He prefers hanging with sheep than with the rest of us. Uh, not king material, so we left him in the fields. But it turns out, by verse 12, the Lord says, rise and anoint David. This is the one, says the Lord. And what is it about David that sort of catches God's eye? What is it about David that he becomes the selection for the next king of Israel? And it's in verse 7 we find these words. After the whole do not consider his appearance, not even his height, uh, for Eliab, it says the Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. You see what I'm saying? The next chapter of whatever it is that God might be calling you into does not depend on the world's perceptions of who you are. It only depends on what God sees in your heart and your character. Uh, the Apostle Paul, when he's preaching, he actually references this very act. Acts chapter 13 after removing Saul as he's preaching, sort of retelling the story of the Old Testament people of God, God made David their king, and God testified concerning David, I have found David, son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. He'll do everything I want him to do. So, what is it about David's heart? That ended up being sort of the qualifications for being, being in on what God was doing in the world. The Bible doesn't actually say in 1 Samuel 16, and it certainly doesn't say in Acts chapter 13, we're left to infer David's character from the rest of the Bible. Fortunately, he's all over the place. Like, he wrote like most of the Psalms, and he's in 1st and 2nd Samuel, and then you know how things like repeat themselves, and he shows up again in Chronicles. It's, he's all over the place. And what we see, let me present to you just a couple of snapshots. Because we could actually do an entire series just on David's heart. But a couple of snapshots. David had a heart of faith. And when I say faith, I don't mean that wishy-washy word like, oh, I just have more faith, and no one actually knows what it means. What I mean is, he placed his trust and confidence in the Lord and made courageous decisions in light of it. 1 Samuel 16, he's anointed as king. 1 Samuel 17, he squares off with Goliath. And this kid walks onto the battlefield and says, I come against you in the name of the Lord, and the Lord has delivered you to me. That's faith. If we would make half of our decisions to honor Christ with that much courage, we'd be doing just fine. A heart of faith. He also had a heart of worship. By the time he's king and they're bringing the Ark of the Covenant up into Jerusalem, he like strips off right down to his linen ephod, and the Scripture says he danced with all his might before the Lord. And all the voices around him are like, is that the king? This is so embarrassing. And his wife, Michael, is looking out the window going, oh my word. And it says she hated him for it. He's like, I don't give a rip what anybody else says. And it wasn't even that he loved the experience of worship so much. Oh, I just love the music. and He loved the God to whom all worship was due. And because of that, he didn't give a rip what those outside voices were saying. He worshipped with all of his might. He had a heart of worship. He also had a heart of honesty. And that's one of the reasons I love the Psalms is because you can enjoy some of the Psalms. Like, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside... Some of them are just really beautiful. 
Psalm 3, on the other hand. Oh, how my enemies surround me. Lord, break their teeth. Okay, that's honest, right? He's not prettying himself up before God. He's not saying, I know I should love my enemies. He's saying, I'd like you to kill them, please. Or at least maim them in significant ways to prevent them from further speech against me. But you know, I think there's something there about a heart that's actually honest before God and willing to say the hard things, willing to reveal the true condition of what you're thinking, what you're feeling, what you're experiencing. There's something beautiful there that David had. He also had a heart of repentance, which is nice because he failed miserably in some pretty cataclysmic ways in terms of his moral compass. Right by the time the whole David and Bathsheba thing, and he sees the woman bathing on the roof, and he commands her to come, and he sleeps with her and gets her pregnant, and not only does he commit adultery and abuse his power, but then he goes and has her husband killed so that he can marry her and pretend the kids... Like, it's just a horrible mess. And when God sends Nathan the prophet to him and says, you suck. That's a different translation. I think it's literally, you are the man. But it's a marginal reading. What is David's initial response? He drops to his knees and says, I have sinned against God. And then he pens. He pens Psalm 51. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. Wash me. I might be whiter than snow could be. That's a heart after God's own heart. Even just a heart of longing. Psalm 42 and 43, that's the, oh, how I long to go back. When can I go and meet with my God? As the deer pants for the water, so my soul longs after you. You see what I mean? We've got plenty of evidence for what the heart of David was like. This just scratches the surface. But God was not looking at his physical build. Unfortunately, he was not looking at his height. He was not looking at whether he was good looking or whether he is of kingly stature, of whether he was well spoken, charismatic, and winsome. And the next chapter of David's life did not depend on what the world could see around him looking in. But the, the shepherd kid? No, his next chapter depended on what God could see, which was his heart. That's First Samuel 16. That's what verse 7. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. And I'm telling you, that is the best news ever. Because that means for you and I, as we're saying, well, how could I possibly be part of what God is doing in the world? My whole life people have been telling me I'm not good enough. My whole life, I don't have any background. I don't have the right education. I don't have the right experience. I don't have the right training. I don't have anything going for me. And it turns out, you don't need to. You don't need to be fill in the blank here. Because whatever it is, it don't matter. Whatever the messages that you've been growing up with, or whatever the messages that you've continued to hear in your adult life, messages that speak down at you, messages that say you're not good enough, you could, God possibly couldn't use you, those are lies from the pit of hell. You don't need any of it. Anything you think you bring to the table, you need to release it right now. Because what God has done in Jesus Christ has accomplished it all for you.
We don't serve because we're good enough or smart enough or because people like us. We serve because Jesus died for our sins and has washed our slate clean and invited us back into right relationship with God. You don't need to be whatever fill-in-the-blank is. What you need is a heart that is longing after God. That is not content to simply go through the motions, but says, I need to be with my God. You need a heart that's going to trust God. Like David and Goliath style trust God. Like says, I don't care what the adversity is, my God is with me and I'm with Him. A heart of worship, of reckless abandon in worship. Of worship that doesn't matter what anyone else around you thinks. Not even in church. As I raise my hands. As I kneel before God. As I celebrate and dance. Maybe the linen ephod thing. I don't know. That, that would be weird. A heart that obeys God. We have the whole counsel of Scripture in front of us. He's given us everything we need to know how to live and obey. To revere Him. To recognize He is holy. Yes, He is near and He is close and He is a friend to sinners. But He is also high and exalted and holy and set apart. And maintaining those two things in balance is part of a heart. It's a heart that's willing to repent. We screw up. I get that. The question is not, will you never screw up again? The question is, how quick are you to repent and to cast yourself at the feet of Jesus and say, I belong to you. Thank you for saving me and forgiving me. It's a call to orient your entire life. Basically, it's just whatever God wants, that's what I want. And if that's where you're at, uh, by the way, we call that love. If you love God, well, then you're ready for the next chapter. Whatever it is that God is about to do in your life, the only thing you need is the prerequisite. is to love Him and say, He's my God. I got whatever's coming because He's with me and I'm with Him. The next chapter of your life does not depend on what the world sees in you, but on what God sees in you. God sees your heart. Best news. Also, incidentally, the worst news ever. And I say that because it's actually quite terrifying, if you think about it, that God sees your heart. But I've spent a good 44 years learning to put up some decent walls here. You should see my Facebook account, and I'm used to, to posturing in front of people, to pretending like I've got it all together. So I post these great shots of me with my kids saying, look what a great father I am. Meanwhile, I'm impatient with them and yelling at them in the background. But that part mysteriously didn't make it to Facebook. It's the worst news ever that God sees your heart um, in many ways because uh, He sees right through us. And that is a decidedly uncomfortable proposition. Which means if you are a person who consciously or not is posturing before God, going through the motions with God, thinking that's enough. If you consciously or unconsciously are misrepresenting yourself, well, I go to church and I tithe and I, I do churchy things and I use Christianese when I speak in church. And If you're chasing after the things that you want, if you're preoccupied with your world, yourself, and, and getting ahead, or if you're striving after 
the things that, that would make you better or make you get ahead. There's an intentional almost misleading that's happening there. I mean, to boil it right down, it's just pretending. But I think we do this because it's easier than being real. We come to church distracted by all of the bells and whistles that are out there in the world around us. But basically, we come in keeping that core of who we are. We'll call that the heart. And I really mean the core of who we are. The Scriptures, when they invoke this idea of heart, they really do mean the, the center of your emotions, your will, your, your uh, affections. It's sort of like the way, you know, when you're talking about a car, and you say, hey, do you bring wheels with you? The wheels are kind of the important part of the car. A piece of it that represents the whole. Did you bring your wheels? Well, how's your heart? It's like, well, the last time I checked, I'm at about 64. But that's not what we're asking. We're saying, how? What, what about the core of your will, your emotions, your affections, everything that makes you you? How's that? And if that is just saying, I want whatever it is that I want, this is called love. It's just not loving the right thing. This is a love of, of self. Or if that's not the right word, then it's a love of your own pride, of your own estimation in the eyes of your peers. Or maybe it's just your autonomy and you're, you're making my own decisions, I'm the boss of me. Or really, it's just anything other than Jesus. Jesus, who <laughs> prayed in the garden, not my will, but yours be done to the Father. Jesus who faced all kinds of challenges. He was beaten. He was accused. He was bruised. You know, the, the, the text in Isaiah that he was bruised for our transgressions, punished for our iniquities. The penalty for our sin was laid upon him and by his wounds we are healed. That's not my A-list of things to do. I don't want wounds. I don't want stripes. But Jesus took all of that and all of our sin upon Himself. Died for it all. Washed it all away and now says, not just I've saved you from your sin, but now I've saved you into new life with God. And don't you dare settle for the messages that the world has been telling you about yourself. Don't fall for the lie that you have nothing to offer, you have nothing to give. The best lies are founded in partial truths. Of course we have nothing to offer and nothing to give. Because God's offered it all and done it all and given it all for us. It is by grace that we're invited into the kingdom of God and by no other criteria. And we take from Jesus' own example that lesson. Because God has the original BS detector. So when we're posturing before Him, when we're pretending that we're doing the Christian thing, when we're up there going through the motions, and I don't care whether that's going to your small group and, or whether it's lying to people saying, yeah, yeah, I'll pray for you, or whatever it is that we do as a church that, that rings hollow. Maybe we need more prayers saying, God, break the teeth of our enemies. I'm not necessarily going to come right out and encourage and affirm that. But the honest heart behind a prayer like that? We need to be a church that cuts through the crap. A church that gets through past the BS because God, He doesn't just have the original BS detector. He invented them. This is His device in the first place. 
So when I say that this is the worst news ever, that God does not look at outward appearances, He looks at the heart, I'm saying because that terrifies me, terrifies me because I've seen my heart from time to time. And I'm not sure I want Him seeing my heart. But at the same time, it, that, that actually is good news. That even the places I'm not willing to go, God's willing to go. That, that maybe it's not just the worst news, but maybe at exactly the same time, as much as I hate it, God is a God who performs heart surgery. And He takes our hearts of stone that have become calloused and self-protecting, that have walls up around them with gates and locks and keys. He just steps around it and goes, yeah, you can't stop me from getting at your heart. And He is the God who tears down the walls. And He's the God who has all the keys. He's the God who takes that heart of stone and turns it into a heart of flesh that is soft and malleable. A heart that can feel again. A heart that is safe again. A heart that says, I am loved and I belong and the Lord is good and His love endures forever. That place, if God can meet me there, that's the best news I've ever heard. So as we study a text like this, we kind of springboard off that verse 7 line. The, the world looks at outward appearances, but God looks at the heart. How does the world see you? I guess an actual question I want you to think about right now. You don't have to raise your hand and answer. I just mean think about it. What are the messages you've heard through your life? What have people said to you, accused you of, labeled you as? And in what ways have you internalized those messages? Believed some of those lies? This morning, I think by seeing that God penetrates all of that and gets to the actual center of who we are, there's an invitation for you this morning that you can be set free from all of it. That no matter what your past is, no matter what people have labeled you as, no matter what issues have arisen, that the voices around you that have spoken into your life, spoken over you, none of it matters. None of it matters to God. Because you matter to God more than any of those voices. And you no longer have to believe the lie. So the first question is, how does the world see you? And we, God wants you to be free from those messages. But the next question is, how does your God see you? And that, while both is, is, is terrifying, is also the best news ever. Because He sees you as His precious child. And He loves you. And He sees us in all of our brokenness, and all of our posturing, and all of our fakeness. And He says, I'm not going to leave you broken. You come into the next chapter with me, says the Lord. And you will find it's not going to be easy, it's not going to be linear, it's not going to be safe, but it's going to be good. And you will find healing and wholeness that will come in Jesus' name. The next chapter of your life, whatever it is, we want to be in a place where we're ready to receive it. That we're positioned to hear it from the Lord. That we know Him so well, we spend enough time with Him that we recognize His voice. And when He calls, we want to be ready for whatever it is that He's calling us into. And the next chapter of whatever that is, we should want to be clear we're all on the same page. 
and that page would be God's page. And he says the next chapter doesn't depend on anything the world says or sees. It depends only on what God sees. And God sees your heart. As we continue in worship, we want to offer you a time for reflection. Um, because the last thing we want to do here is, is be a church that just provides information. Here's what the Bible says. We want a church that encourages transformation. Because in light of what the Bible says, what does God want to do in your life this morning? How's He going to wreck your coming week? How's he going to undo all of the walls that you spent so much time building up between you and him? How's he going to give you the worst news you've ever heard, which is God sees your heart, and transform that into the best news you've ever heard, which is it's safe for God to see my heart? Because he loves me. As the worship team comes back up, let me pray, and we want to invite you to continue wrestling with the questions of what are the voices that I have heard and what are the messages that have been spoken over me. How, Lord, might you set us free to step away from anything that the world sees and to care only about that which you see, Lord Jesus. So let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we love you and we are thankful. I think we are thankful that you see us without any of our walls, without any of our pretense, without any of the, the things we do to pretend to others around us that we have it all together. Because we don't. And if we think we do, we just have to wait for tomorrow to come because then we won't. But I am so grateful that you are a God who gets past our defenses, who is not fooled by our fake. I kind of picture you shaking your head sort of gently with a benevolent smile on it as we try to hide from you, like behind the curtains, but our toes are still sticking out. And you're like, I can see you. You're like right there. Foolishness to try and hide from you, O oh God. But it's scary being known that completely. Oftentimes it's scary for us to be known that completely because the people that have known us have hurt us in the past. And Lord Jesus, into those situations, we pray for your healing. We pray for your courage to be able to step beyond the messages that we've heard from the world around us even from the people closest to us. In Jesus' name, bring healing and wholeness into those situations. And we ask for a faith that rings with such truth and authenticity and grittiness and, and reality that we would not be even tempted to just go through the motions because that's what we're supposed to do, but that we would be so captivated by a vision of your glory and your beauty and your love for us that we can't even help but just throw the doors to our hearts wide open and say, I'm all yours. But to do that, Lord, we have to trust that you're going to be gentle. That it's going to be safe to do that and to invite you in. But over and over again, we see that you are gentle. You are good. You are loving. A bruised reed you will not break. You are a tender shepherd to your people. So even this morning, God, we ask for 
don't know, maybe it's just called courage. Courage to see beyond what the world sees, even about ourselves. Courage to be vulnerable before you, to sort of acknowledge that you see all of us. And courage just maybe to take one step closer to you. In that place, just meet us in that one step. Show us that that one step is safe, so that we can take the next step. And then show us that that step is safe, and allow us to take the next step. And may our tiny little steps become confident strides, and may our confident strides become running the race that you have set before us, that we might go headlong into the next chapter. Whatever you have in store for us, whatever it is, if you're there, that's where we want to be too. We love you. In your name. Amen.